Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and this was an absolutely delightful conversation with an icon of Australian sport, Trevor Hendy. But this was so much more than just talking sport and his, uh, his victories. We really dive into his highs and his lows and his experiences, and we get some real depth into who Trevor Hendy is is as a person. It's a fascinating journey. It's a fascinating story. I feel like even though this is a longer episode, I actually feel like we could probably do two or three more episodes. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. It was absolutely fascinating and, and really great to connect with Trevor after so many years. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Right. Today's guest is a true Australian legend, considered by many to be the world's greatest surf Ironman of all time, a master of the surf and a guru in life coaching. He transitioned from dominating the surf life-saving world to inspiring countless others in their personal journeys. He's a four-time world surf Ironman champion and six-time Australian surf Ironman champion and three times in second. He's also won the Uncle Toby's Super Series four times. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in 1996 for services to surf lifesaving and is a member of the Australian, Queensland and Gold Coast Surf Lifesaving Halls of Fame. Today, we'll dive into his remarkable life. And to say I'm a fan um, is a little bit of an understatement. Uh, My weekends in my early 20s in the 90s were spent watching this man on TV just dominate the competition and master the ocean and was just simply inspiring. Um, and I often visualize this man when I was competing myself, uh, just an absolute master of the way he approached things. So without further ado, welcome to the Greg Bennett show, Trevor Hendy. How are you, mate? Oh, Greg, that's what a beautiful intro, mate. Thank you. And, and, um, what an honor that we get to have this conversation all these years later. Um, yeah. and, uh, in this style and the long form and everything and to share, you know, life's true meanings and all that sort of stuff but just reflect back on a few things and i'm, I'm just stoked to be with you mate so thank oh, you that was very humbling oh thanks mate well it is it truly is a privilege i've got my mum over here with me in florida and i said oh, i got trevor hendy this <laughs> afternoon and uh, you know growing up in australia in the 80s and 90s when you know you guys surf iron man was just the thing and you know, I, I even mm-hmm. I even when brought up Baywatch when you had a starring role in one of the <laughs> Baywatch episodes. I mean, that's how big you guys were. It was, you know, and I think Baywatch was watched by like a billion people or something. It's just I don't know. Do you sometimes pinch yourself and go, "Wow, is that a dream? Was that really me?" It's often. It's funny. The Baywatch thing often becomes part of a running gag when I do. <laughs> you know, speaking gigs and stuff like that is that, you know, that my greatest achievement was being on Baywatch and, you know, (laughs) season seven, episode eight, you know. But um, um, it's funny because I think there's a few things that are clustered in that same sort of area of um, achievements, not quite the right word, but experiences that I had. So probably Mm -hmm. going on Baywatch, um, meeting Madonna, hanging out with Madonna for a while, meeting Michael Jackson, Wow. Um, and then we created an Iron Man band and we toured with the Beach Boys. We were the backup. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I played on stage with John Farnham, you know, for people in Australia. Yeah. They know who John Farnham is very well, wow. one of the most incredible voices in the world. And, and um, all sorts of different crazy experiences and so many others that I could name and, and talk about. But 
they all sit in this kind of echelon of kind of crazy. Like, um, mm-hmm. oh, that's really interesting. Like, how did you end up in those places and doing those things? And I think that's the part that I reflect back on and go, what a fascinating journey. Like, I literally have this, wow, how, what, what was going on? How did they end up there, you know? Um, and and to, be, to be honest, it was, you know, it was an honour to, to have all those experiences and to, yeah. to do all that. And one of the things I found that I talk to people about is all those people that I just mentioned, and, and on Baywatch you've got David Hasselhoff and Pamela Anderson, is that when you get in, walk through a door, and someone's presented to you, like you're presented to somebody as this guy is a legend in his field or he's the winner of this or he's he yeah. does this. And when people introduce you to somebody who's, you know, like worldwide famous like that, but they introduce you in a way that um, it supposedly commands respect or whatever, it's a funny thing. It's, it's a strange way of explaining this, but what actually happens is the people let their guard down straight away because they feel as though somehow you're not someone going to pull on them or tug on them or looking for fame because you're already exceeding at, you know, succeeding at a high mm-hmm. level or whatever. So um, I had all these experiences with these people and they all just dropped their guard. They all just opened up. Well, I had all yeah. of them had very deep conversations and really connected moments and it, it began to make me think back then before I fully understood what my purpose was or could be in life. Um it's like, oh, why do people open up to me? <laughs> you know, why, yeah, yeah. why? Why do? Why am I here? And why is this person that everybody else has got on a pedestal and perfect? They're telling me their problems, <laughs> telling me their challenges, and they're opening yeah. right up to me like I've known them for fifty years. You know, and and so it began me down a journey of you think that's the highest experience, and and none of this explanation I'm giving is meant to portray that at all. It's just that that was like, oh, hang on, everybody on this planet is fighting battles. Everybody on this planet is doing mm. the best with what they know. And they some people might have taken their skill to the highest level and now everybody lauds them and applauds them. You know, mm. other people have got the same skill but they just didn't quite have the circumstances right to make it work. And But we've all got the same capacity in different areas um, and we're all quite capable and powerful um, but we're all fighting battles. And so the mm. whole pedestal thing um, fell away for me because I realised, no, we're all the bloody same. We, you know, yeah. the great lie yeah. in life is that we're different. The great mm-hmm. deception, the great um, illusion, um, the, the great truth is that we're all much more the same and we are different. Um, and that probably, by getting to what seems to be a pedestal of like, like a pedestal experience, it made me realise, wow, this is not this is not where it's at. It's actually about getting to know people, whether they're well known or they're just walking down the street. And I've always I love that benefited from that experience because I, I'm not under the illusion that there's somewhere better to be or someone better to be or something mm-hmm. better to be. Um, it's all about this experience right now and, and making the most of it. And that leads you to the next one and, and you can grow from there. It's awesome. What, what a great way to start the show with a yeah, great step of uh, perspective. Yeah. No, it's, you're, you're a man of my own heart. This is, um, you know, I spent a lot of the time on the show talking about you know, how sport really helped me in my, my adolescent days. And we'll go through your journey in a moment, but it helped me in those adolescent days because of the insecurities, right? That yes, yeah. the typical insecurities that we all tend to deal with. And we still, I still will deal with them now in circum circumstances, but I remember sport really helped me sort of go, okay, everybody's got insecurities. I just got to overcome them using, using the tools that I can. Um, but that's really cool. I, I, I love starting mm. the show that way and, and just, 
a massive slapper perspective. Um, I'm all about that. And I'm all about grounding myself and, and um, having practicing gratitude and, and trying to just get yourself back to neutral as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, but mate, when was the last time we met? I, I can't even, was it on Noosa Beach? We're on Noosa Beach, wandering down Noosa Beach and bumping each other. I'm not even sure. I've, I've lost track of time. Like basically yeah. COVID destroyed my time understanding altogether. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is yeah. it, um, how long have you been over there living now? Uh, we've been over here for a while. So I married an American girl. Um, yes. She was also an Olympic triathlete for the US, Laura yep. Bennett. And um, yeah, we came over here. Well, we were living in Boulder for six months and then Noosa for six months for yes, yeah. about 15 years. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we had kids late once we retired from sports and, and so we moved to Florida. Um, yeah. But I am thinking, you know, I've had Kai Hurst on the show. Yes. Um, good mate of both of ours and another yes. Aussie Aussie Surf Ironman legend. I'm thinking of doing like a mini series. Now that I've got you here, you know, I reached out to you and said, would you come on the show? And you said, yes. Yeah, I was like, wow, yeah. that's cool. I think maybe I need Guy Andrews and Guy Leach. Um Absolutely. And then we all watched you guys, you know, we all loved watching you. We all watched you, mate. It was, uh, (laughs) it was mutual respect. (laughs) So yeah, watching you guys, um, you know, anybody listening to this and and let's frame it for the international audience because Surf Ironman in Australia was, I mean, still is, but definitely the late eighties and nineties, it just really took on its own sort of flair and was live television for two to three hours on a weekend um, and just had the fittest athletes on the planet going through the biggest surf. Normally, you know, in a triathlon, they'd cancel every one of the races that you guys swam in. I, I'll never, obviously, everybody probably talks about Pihar in 96 in, yes. in New Zealand, um, yeah. the most ferocious. But, I mean, you had plenty of those experiences. And the point of what I'm trying to say is surf life-saving and – it's a culture where every Australian beach has um, a surf life-saving service where basically yeah. the guards are there to patrol the beaches and make sure nobody gets hurt or drowned or anything yeah. else. But then this professional series and these professional racing came out of it. Um, and you guys just became the pinup boys of Australia, the you know six-foot-plus tall bronze Aussies, and you paddled. Um, the board skis and, and swam and ran. And uh, it really was, I feel like every young Australian guy was like, ah, I just want to be like those guys. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about festivals, yes. And like a, a really quick history for context for everybody is that um, uh, surf lifesaving, so as you mentioned, lifeguarding the beaches, but lifeguards mm. are paid. So lifesavers are volunteers. So, okay. Okay. yeah, so basically a surf club, which is 320, I think, in Australia now, um, a surf club sits on the foreshore of a, you know, a coastal town and that's where everybody goes down to go to the beach. The lifesavers are like a family organisation of volunteers. From 15 up, you can have your bronze medallion, which is, allows you to be a full lifesaver. From 13 up, you can have your resuscitation certificate. So you have junior lifesavers, which they call them junior guards in the US, etc. cetera. Um, mm. But it's a whole family thing. So, it, you know, um, the idea of turning up on the beach, putting up some patrol flags, some red and yellow flags, constructing a whole patrol structure, and sitting there for half of your Saturday to volunteer your time to keep somebody else safe, it's quite a noble thing, you know. So mm. life-saving itself is 177,000, last time I looked, 177,000 members in Australia, volunteer oh. members in Australia. And so it had such a, because our coastlines are so famous in Australia um, mm. and so much of our lifestyle revolves around it, 
and it had such a magnetic um, attraction for people to be down the beach, but also, wow, the lifesavers, they called them the bronzed Aussies, and they went out there and they rescued kids and adults and a little bit like the Baywatch thing and a bit like Bondi rescue for people that have seen that. But once mm. again, volunteer, not paid. And um, so Grant Kenny came along, but a little bit more history. 1966, Australia is racing the USA in USA in a surf life-saving contest. And um, we're racing the lifeguards, and I wasn't there, of course, I wasn't born. But um, but they had a race called the Ironman, and um. it's where the, the name Ironman started in, um, in lifeguards in um, the US, and it might even be in California. But um, they would swim, they would paddle aboard, and they would row a dory boat um, sitting in a one-person boat, two oars, rowing backwards through the waves, and it was a piece of rescue equipment. And the yeah. Australians did that with them against them in a test, a test match against the two. And they, when they came back in 1966, they introduced that race into the Australian Championships for the first time. But because we didn't have dories, they put us on, you know, ocean kayaks, which we call racing skis, um, mm-hmm. surf skis, and they're 17 foot six long. And so it was swim, board, ski with runs in between, and they called it the Ironman race. And that was run in 1966 and won by Grant Kenny. Who you need to have on the podcast, right? Did he win? Did he win way back then? Sorry, sorry, not Grant Kenny. Hayden Kenny. Grant Kenny. I was going to say, okay, okay. Hayden Kenny. Yeah. Yes, he's yeah. dead. Yes, so, yes. So Hayden Kenny, and and that's and Hayden Kenny become the first Australian winner of the Ironman race, and then <laughs> it went on for years, and different people, and it became the event because it put all together the swim rescue, the board rescue, the ski rescue. You know, in this sport that's all about the bronze Aussies and these heroes that go out and volunteer. And then in 1980, Grant, Hayden's son, competed in the junior Ironman. He was 16 and the senior Ironman on the same day and won both. And that. so it captured the attention of everybody. And, um, and then Kellogg's Nutrigrain came along and said, we want to put you on the cereal box. And it turned into Grant Kenny, you know, um, board, swim, ski, corn, oats, wheat, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. and it became Ironman food. So in Australia, Nutrigram was called Ironman food. And then I think um, you could probably help me, but I think it's sometime in the 80s, maybe 81 or something like that, um, that uh, maybe later, 86, 87, maybe, I'm not sure, but um, the Hawaii, in, in Kona, these guys set up this race, a triathlon over a long distance, and they called it the Ironman. And yeah, but they they did that. Yeah, so they were twelve. So Surf Ironman, yep. the name Ironman for Surf predates what we would term in triathlon Ironman by twelve years. So they yep. say nineteen seventy eight is when they called it the Ironman um, in 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 Oahu, actually, which is really cool because we were like, oh wow, yeah, look at that thing. You know, that's that, yeah, that's yeah. an Ironman for sure because we just always thought Ironman was a particular thing. Then what yep. was funny was that when triathlon got big and that race became big. They patented the name um, Ironman, but Surf Life Saving already had it in Australia. So it was a really yeah. interesting time. When we did the Uncle Toby Super Series, um, we weren't allowed to call it the Uncle Toby's Ironman Series because Surf Life Saving had that name and we'd broken away from Surf Life Saving like the, oh. you know, the, the uh, privately run triathlon series and all that sort of stuff. So a bit of background history. And then, of course, when we ran the series, we then um, got the triathletes um, on board to race with us. So we had triathlon and Ironman back to back on this on the same weekend in the same venues for a while. So we had—I'm not sure if you raced in those ones, but 
Um, we had Greg Welsh and um, Spot Anderson, I think. Spot Anderson and, and, uh, and all that crew. Brad then. Bevan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brad yeah. Bevan um, yeah. and all that. So we all became mates and raced around and everything. But it was always interesting that I go around the world and people go, oh, he's the world Ironman champion. They go, oh, my father did that. He qualified for Kona in the Master. I'm like, oh, different, <laughs> oh, no. different Ironman. You know, it's, and it's surf Ironman, ocean Ironman, whatever you want to call it. But, um, but yeah, Isn't that's how funny? it transferred yeah. through. And, of course, when it – um, the Uncle Toby series went on, went on national TV and there was only, there was no Foxtel back then or Netflix or there was no mm. internet really. There was no social media. There's yeah, no three internet. channels, mate. We had yeah. seven, nine and ten and the ABC. No and you introduced SBS <laughs> and ABC and, and, um, and so we're on one of those and it became yeah. a big time and it was a lot of fun and it was a captive oh, audience but that's, that's how it all started. It was huge, mate. Uh, I just, you know, it brings back such fond memories. And I, I got to say, you know, as much as I was a fan of triathlon in about 86, 87, I started getting into it. And I'd watch the Hawaii Ironman on Wide Water Sports about six yes. months later because it was always delayed. And, delayed, I remember that, yeah. But I, but I always thought of Ironman as you guys, even yeah. though, you know, now if you say Ironman, especially in the US, people, you know, be like, well, of course it's, yeah. you know, swim bike run and it's Absolutely. Hawaii. But, but growing up, for me in the early '90s, for sure, it was you guys. You guys were the Ironman athletes, and uh, the other ones were just long course triathletes. I don't know. I don't know what do I call, what I called them. But so yeah. tell me then, you when did it all? When did your p- passion for the sport all start? How old were you? Where were you? And and you know, what was that like? Yeah. So I look. I I born in Melbourne, uh, southern Southern Australia. Um, Travelled around. <laughs> Australia for two years from three years of age to five years of age with my mum and dad and my sister in a caravan. And um, dad had decided that he had the great job and the great house and everything that he was supposed to have, but he he felt like something was missing and something wasn't right. And that's that old picket fence thing, you know, yeah. you live, you get the dream and then you go, hang on, I feel a bit hollow, you know. And, and he always also felt that people, this is back in 1971, Wow. The people wanted their holidays. They wanted to go to America and Europe and everything else and on, jump on a Qantas flight, you know. Um, mm. Believe it or not, that happened a lot back then. And and, um, and he was like, why don't we see our own country first, you know. And so he didn't know it at the time, but I understand now. He was getting called to country, which is mm. a, a term we use in Australia for, you know, um, getting called to country to the connection of land and the spirit um, that the Indigenous, our Indigenous Australians, our original Australians use that mm-hmm. term. Um called to country. And so he was getting called to country and we actually travelled around Australia. We spent a lot of time up north, northern Queensland, northern territory in northwestern Australia, like lived there, worked there. Um, I learned to swim in the Daly River, which now if you told people that, they'd be like, what? It's like it, that crocodiles were hunted back then and they were hard to find. You had to go way up the creek. So we used to swim down the creek all the time. Now I went to the same spot last year. I'm 55 now. I took my wife back to the same spot and a couple of friends up in the – in the Northern Territory, the same, it looks exactly the same as it did when I was there when I was three years of age. It's been untouched. And um, I walked over to where we used to swim and a crocodile slid into the bank 10 feet to my left, you know, about a four-metre a four crocodile, and then wow. just sat there watching me. And I was like, wow, you know. Um, so I, I connected. I, I grew up with these values um, and I suppose intrinsically – you know, intuitively, instinctively began to know home as the bush and to know home as this peaceful place where you're not in a competition with someone else, you're not trying to prove something else, you're not trying to look good. 
you know, it doesn't matter if your singlet doesn't match your shorts. Um, you're just out there trying to catch barramundi and, you know, catch freshwater prawns and, you know, chasing buffalo around and, and playing with the Indigenous kids. And and I, so in that age, they say between um, conception and seven years of age is when most of your patterns and your um, your mm. life habits are formed by what you're exposed to. And as your brain's really developing. And so that period three to five, I was literally off grid the whole time, even though there wasn't really a grid back then like there is now. I was Mm -hmm. still off grid and I was lucky that my father um, had this thing inside of him that he'd already discovered that he didn't want to go back to that picket fence lifestyle and believe that that was the holy grail, you know. And Mm -hmm. so every afternoon, even when he finished work up in Darwin, he would come home and go, what are we doing? And he'd take us on an adventure and so I'm, my father's 90 now and he's in, in a home with dementia and, mm. you know, um, I've been through sort of seven or eight years of the process of watching him fade and slip and I've, I've sort of grieved through it and now realise that every moment he still gives me the gift because I have to show up without him having any recognition and still he looks and looks and looks and then when he recognises me, his whole face lights up and his body lights up and he produces all the chemicals, the oxytocin and the serotonin, mm. and, you know, and I watch it and he's so he's ridiculously healthy because every moment's a new moment for him because he can't retain any information. But as I look at him fading and know that he's not, you know, he's close to departing at some point, I, I think back more and more and I realise what he set me up with. So mm. as I went through the journey and travelled around Australia, I had these values and I ended, we ended up settling on the Gold Coast because it was the city or town that had the most balanced of those values. So you could still succeed in life. There was job opportunities, but it was lifestyle. You could, you know. That's I when the Gold Coast was still very, I mean, what was that? We were talking early 70s mm, then? Yeah, so 73 and it was yeah. probably, I don't know, maybe it was 80,000 people living here or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> now it's a million. Um, yeah. And but there's a narrow strip between the Gold Coast beaches of, of Surface Paradise and up to mm. the hinterland. There's a there's a um, an area of rainforest near the best of all lookout up in Springbrook, which is to, mm. for me to drive. There's about forty minutes, and it's as old as the Daintree rainforest, which is old as old as anything on the planet. Um, and so you know we've got this incredible rainforest just up the back, and we've got this incredible Pacific Ocean sort of fringing and lapping on the foreshore here. And this narrow strip that you can build on. So there's no heritage houses on the Gold Coast. There's no because one by one, every time something gets a bit older, someone comes in and can afford to buy and goes, I want that place. And so it's a it's a fascinating place to live because not that many people can live here because it's a narrow strip. But it's a mixture between a city and a and a country town because you still have so much lifestyle around here. But um so I've always found it a perfect place to to grow up and learn. But basically I joined Nippers when I was eight. At Surface Paradise Surf Club, which is the busiest beach next to Bondi in Australia. And tell everybody what Nippers is because there's a lot of people listening. They're going, what did you just say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Nippers is the junior, junior lifesavers. So mm. Nippers is um, where you're learning the skills of paddling these little nipper boards, these little tiny little <laughs> surfboards that are like little mini rescue boards. You're learning how to swim through the ocean. You do this thing called beach flags where you have to lay on the ground and they blow a whistle and you all spin around at the same time and 
11 of you run and try and dive on a little piece of um, uh, nylon hose <laughs> that's stuffed in the sand and there's only 10 of them there, so one misses out. So it's like the musical beach flag. So it's about reaction times and yeah. the beach sprints and, you know, all these different events. And then when you grow up a bit older, you do surf boats and skis and all the things that you might want to get attracted to. But, but Nippers is the place where you face your fears, really. Um, you learn mm. to socialize with other kids. You learn to take guidance and lead from age managers and coaches. Um, uh, but all in all, you learn to find your way around a beach and successfully go into the water and out of the water again. You learn to operate in and out of rips and, you know, get, use the rip currents to swim out in and then use the sandbank to come back and, and to understand how the ocean rotates around and it might look like it wants to take you out to sea and drown you, but it doesn't. It's just doing its thing. And so <laughs> by the time you go from an eight-year nipper to a 13-year nipper, you've and you do that through the summer season, probably through um, southern hemisphere summer, is is our Christmas time, but probably from you know earlier than that to later. So you go September to sort of March. You're in nippers, maybe April, and then you have winter off and play football. You know, but um, so I I learnt. I went to nippers, cried my first day, got into it, didn't want to compete against anyone. Cried my first day. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, love I, it. I you know, um, there's a whole bunch of stories in here, but um. Yeah, my yeah. father, to his credit, what he did was when I started crying and didn't want to do the pool swim at the motel swimming pool before we crossed to the beach, um, he just pulled me back, got him to start the race without me. And um, I was just used to running around with kids in the Northern Territory and hanging under yes. my mum's cocktails and playing with my matchbox cars and swimming down. I, I didn't – when everybody stood on the edge of the swimming pool and started swinging their arms around and had fierce, determined looks on their face like they were trying to win the the underage nipper point score for the year with their parents cheering them on, I shit myself. You know, I was like <laughs> – I, I love like, that. what? No, you know, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, I don't want to do this. And yeah. so um, – I go over and I'm hanging under my dad and they run the race and they've run the rest of the races and then they all walk down the beach and dad says, okay, all right, Trev, it's okay to be scared. And, you know, what are you scared of? I don't want to go in that race with them. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, all right, now it's your turn to do the laps. So he did this really, really cool thing for me, which is one of the simplest pieces of advice I ever pass on to people, parents and coaches. Mm -hmm. And that was, he didn't allow me to um, to give up or to run away and hide from something. He lowered what I call he lowered the confront for me. He identified the thing that I wasn't comfortable doing. He removed that part of it, but got me to follow through with the action. So he got me to swim the six laps on my own after they left. Mm. And so, for the rest of my life since that. I've always been able to, when I've been scared or worried or fearful in relationships or jobs or big, you know, public situations or whatever, I've always been able to go, okay, I'm not going to um, avoid this or run away from it. I'm just going to take a step back and work out what's the most comfortable way for me to do this until I can find my feet. And I've always ultimately ended up finishing cycles that I've started or completing or conquering projects that I've started. Um, the ones that I care about anyway, the ones that I really want to follow through and didn't just need to learn a lesson. Um, mm. And it came from that day, from that moment when he said, no, 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 son, no, Trev, you don't give up, you don't run away, you just do it, but I'll take away the fear for you and I'll do something you already know to do, which is swim the laps, mm. you know, mm. and then the next week I just did it with them and then slowly but surely, isn't that funny that I'm explaining that and I became known as the guy 
that couldn't be beaten for eight yeah. or ten years in the sport in any conditions and blah 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 blah. And that's and what I, I love. I love know. this trip. Like, you know, I've got young kids now, so you know they're yeah. about to turn six and four, and and I'm around parents that are pushing their kids and pushing yeah. whether it's academics or sport and everything. And all I'm all about free play. Uh, yeah. By the way, there's a really good book. It's called uh, "The Coddling of the American Mind," and cool. how good intentions, are, you know, are bad ideas, kind of thing. Yeah. And it's 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 kind of the way your dad approached you, and still found a way and kind of massaged you into this sport that ended up shaping a lot of your life, you know. And you weren't the most competitive kid to start. You weren't, you know, the, the best. You weren't the best, and you weren't pushed. And I, I just shake my head so much at parents. Just back off. Let the kids play. Let the kids play. And let and, greatness come out of that if it wants to. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and look, the other thing is, look, I, at, at 15 years of age, I'd never won a race. I was in the Ken oh. Roseville Tennis Academy yeah. and I and I hadn't won a singles match. I played really solid tennis and I couldn't just didn't win, get my way through rounds. I was <laughs> um, a representative cross-country runner, but I would get – you know, second in the school cross country, then second in the regional, then second. I never won anything. Um, yes. it, you know, hockey, but we, oh, I did everything. And my dad came to me and he said, This is later, like 15, 16 years of age. And he said to me, Hey, Trev, I just want to have a chat. And I said, Yeah. And he said, Look, just, just a thought. You can go on being good at every sport you do because you, you're really good at every sport you do, or you can pick one and be the best at it if you want to. And I went, oh, and he said, just, just food for thought and just left me, left me with it and it percolated in my mind. Yeah. It wasn't his ideas in my mind. It was just an, a thought. And I went, yeah. wow, wow, wow. And I just had enough. I'd been bullied enough and I'd felt powerless enough and I'd felt insecure enough and I, I felt like when I boiled it down, tennis and Ironman, I felt when I played tennis and when I raced in Ironman or paddle boards and swam, I felt like I was out there and I was free and I was doing it and I was I loved it. I really enjoyed the play of it all. And I mm-hmm. so I boiled it down to those two things and I was thinking, do I want to take one of these and be the best at it? And it, this other part of me started going, yeah, because I do, because if I'm the best at it, no one will speak to me like that anymore. I won't get flushed and initiated at the surf club or bullied or, <laughs> you know, the winner of the race won't steal my girlfriend you know, because he's he's the legend, you know. So I had all these insecurities which will come into the second half of this conversation. Um, so we'll, we'll park those over to the side. But but I had this shadow and this not good enough and this, you know, my mum and dad were like my gods, mm. you know. Um, they, my dad, I loved him. I adored him. I wanted to be like him. But also when I heard other people speak about him, your know, father's incredible, and you know, he was Australian Armed Forces boxing champion. So he was the he was the strongest, toughest fighter in all of the armed forces in Australia. You know, like you wow. know, so in your fighting forces, he was so he was a, a, a um, life member of his golf club, of his cricket club. He did it back in Melbourne before we'd left, and you know, he everything he did, he did really, really well, and. Um, yeah. But he, so I wanted to be like him. But one of the things that he did that I most wanted to be like was my mother loved and adored him. And so I saw this thing that I wanted to be loved and adored like my father is. I want a partner like my father has that laughs with him and, you know, as travels around the country with him and go anywhere with him. And so 
I felt like I had to be like my dad to be worthy of having someone like my mum. And what that really meant was I, um, to be worthy of love or to experience love or to experience this feeling of this family unit and this bigger thing than just winning, um, I had to be a winner, you know. To, be, to experience this bigger thing than winning, I had to be a winner. Um, it was all percolating subconsciously in the back of my mind and I grew up and I watched the guy that won the Australian title, you know, while I was away, he got my girlfriend, you know, and like that, you know, it was all this. And the guy that won the world title, like Dwayne Ties, the world Ironman champion, yeah. he would send me postcards from around the world on his winter tours saying, Hey, Trev, just thinking of you, you'd love this place. And oh, so I wanted to be like Dwayne. I wanted to be like the other guy who won the title, you know, because he got the girl. I wanted to be like my dad. And I wanted to be like everybody that seemed to wanted to give that would give me what I really wanted deep down, which was to be confident, secure, be loved. And perhaps when I explore it in this moment, um, I just wanted to feel good about myself. I wanted to feel mm-hmm. enough. I wanted to feel like I was enough, not mm-hmm. not enough. And the only way seemed to be, well, put all those pieces together, be like him, him, and him. And that's kind of um, both inspiring and troubling because uh at that moment, I stopped being like myself um, and started trying to be like everybody else that would get me what I mm-hmm. wanted. So mm-hmm. I I started to win, you know. I started to actually uh, – I trained like the guy that wanted to win, like the guy that needed that to be loved and liked. And, and um, it went. I went through this journey of actually all of a sudden I was the guy winning races and I was the guy winning everything. And in a short period of time, I was the guy that was unbeatable but I become also like the shadow sides of the people that I was trying to be like. So mm. I picked up on some of my dad's own insecurities. I picked up on, which wasn't much. My dad was probably the best one to try and be like, but I picked up, but they were there, definitely there. Um, I picked mm. up on these other guys, you know, Dwayne's, Dwayne's habits and insecurities and Chris's and everything else. And, you know, um, and these are, you know, Dwayne in particular became my best mate and we traveled the country and you, you, you know, Dwayne, you know, you know, him while he was the world Ironman surf Ironman champion in 83. And I just wanted to be just like him and, and we're still great mates and best mates and everything. But, um, but it was like, I, I slowly had to learn that I'm trying to be like everybody else, um, which is not myself to get something which is love and acknowledgement and recognition and feeling good enough about myself because if I had all those things, then I'd be comfortable being myself. So the strange, bizarre thing was I was trying to be like someone else or something else to be be able to be myself and it ended up in all sorts of tragedies and travesties and broken relationships and bankruptcies and betrayals and all sorts of different things which we'll touch on more in the second half of this conversation but um, but. Uh, at the same time, uh, the way I explain it is that little, that little um, values and that spirit that was inside of me from connecting to country when I was younger, connecting to mm. nature, to standing on the plains of the Northern Territory and feeling like I was one with everything. I've, I've had memories since in lucid moments of going, oh, my God, eight years of age and stepping out of my dad's car with the biggest smile on my face, feeling like I was connected to, to country, connected to all the trees, all the land, feeling like the energy inside of that spirit of that land was in me. Mm. And then turning to my sister, who was 13, 
five years older, knowing she is the only one that I'm truly understood and looking and she got out and looked and went, oh, and I was like, yeah, like we were both connected to country together, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, I had this background of spirit and depth and love and simplicity, which was who I really was, and then I had this growing, burgeoning, you know, developing ego or persona or way of being that was desperately insecure that felt like I had to add all these other things to myself, included being respected and being liked and admired and loved and acknowledged. I have to add all these things to make this insecurity go away Mm. so I could feel like myself. So the whole time I raced, you know, when you talk about the start, oh, I followed you and I really loved watching you. I've always felt that people picked up on the spiritual part of me, the part that was the true simple guy because I would finish races and I'd talk about, oh, God, how funny was that? And, oh, wow, I was really in the shit there for a while. And, you know, and I always had the humble, simple self, but I'd built this case shell that at some stage I was going to have to break. And most people couldn't really see it that much. Maybe people called it confidence. Some people called it cockiness. Um but it was ultimately it was an ego that I had to break down. But it was this massive mix of light and dark and everything. But I had this most incredible experience of life, of winning and succeeding and growing and learning and flying across the water and meeting incredible people like yourself and others all around the world. But at the same time, at some point, I was going to have to come back and face all the shit that I hadn't dealt with. And that was when the inner journey kind of started and that was the second half of my, of my story. But that's where I learned. That was the second part of the magic where I had to learn from the shit I'd got myself in. You know, I, I love that. And there's tons to unpack in that because mm. <clears throat> I'm kind of nodding my head going, yep. yep, yep. I'm the guy that never won anything in school. I, you know, all through school, I was second, 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 everything. Mm. But I also, I also, you know, I found triathlon when I was 14, 15. And, and it was like, a, it was, it was something for me. You know, mm. I went to a school where it was all about rowing and rugby and uh, I went down the boat shed to row and I was putting the, the coxswain seat because I was so small, right? Mm. <laughs> and it was kind of like trying to find your way through life. And and I resonate also when you say, you know, you're trying to be like somebody, whether it's mm. your dad or mate or anybody. And and it was when I met my wife in 2000, Laura, and she she said to me once, you know, you can't just pick and choose when you say you want to be like somebody or, or, you know, it's like you have to be that entire person. And as you talked about, it's like, uh, you know, you pick up on your dad's insecurities. And if you, when you, if you're going to be like somebody, you have to actually be that whole person that you want to be like, and you yeah. don't want to be that person, you want to be you. So stop trying to be like anybody. Yeah. Um, and one of the most freeing things I think, and Laura has been like my little pocket psychologist, my whole career. Um, well life. And, uh, she said to me once, she said, Greg, nobody cares about you. Uh, and it was so freeing. It wasn't a bad thing. Like no, your first reaction is like, what? Nobody cares well, about you. Well, yeah, yeah. but, but the best thing about it is that you're now free because yeah. she said, look, Greg, they're talking to you right now, but then they're going away and they've got their own problems. Mm. They've got their own things that they're dealing with mm. and they've already forgotten you. They've you're gone around the corner. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you understand that, it's kind of, um, I hadn't heard another expression. It was like in your, in your 20s and 30s, you know, you worry about what everybody else is thinking. In, in, your, in your 40s and 50s, you don't worry about what they're thinking. And then in your 60s and 70s, you realize they weren't thinking about you at all. <laughs> yes, that's true. And, and it's almost like the sooner you get to that, you know, yes. nobody's thinking about it. That doesn't mean you don't have friends and loved ones and everything else and you're not loved and everything else. It just means 
People are people, as you said earlier in the show, got their own stuff to deal with. Everyone's got mm. stuff. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And some of us, we're painting over all of that stuff because they're winning a race or whatever. So you don't see all the stuff behind the scenes. But let, let, let's move forward a little bit then. Mm. So you found the sport. We've talked about a lot of, you know, we've glanced over some of your success um, in the introduction. I kind of mentioned it and, and some of the doors that it opened, the people you met and, and everything else. But when you look back at that part of your life, you know, uh, that journey, what were some of the real career highs and lows um, that you had during that sort of phase? Um, you know, I answer every question I ever get asked these days in the moment, you know, not with the same answer that I've given before. I just like, what, do you, I like what, the, what is the yeah. answer to that question now? What is, what's now, now is yeah. the answer, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and what just popped into my mind, one of the highs was, um, believe it or not, was the mateships I created. So, you know, Grant Kenny, Craig Riddington, Guy Leach, Dwayne Ties in particular, and then Guy Andrews, younger guys, Nathan Meyer, Phil Clayton, um, Stephen King, Brett Tyke, et cetera, that, you know, afterwards of the next generation that came through. I've missed missed quite a few. But if I just start with the first first four, Grant, and Darren and Dean Mercer before that, they were in a different series, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, but Grant, Guy, um, Rido, and Dwayne, if I just focus on that for a moment, the four of us, the five of us, um, we'd all won all the major titles. But in when the sport broke away from surf lifesaving, um, it was on the front page of the paper. It was like World Series cricket. You know, we were going to mm-hmm. get banned. I and, yeah, yes. and it was, it's yeah. what actually made us really big. Was that Australians went, "Hey, you can't do that to them." You know, like it was the, the getting. Uh, you know, the your mates were looking after you. Every Australian wanted to come to the beach and support the series because they were going to kick out kick out the Ironman out of the series, you know, out of this, this, yeah. the uh, movement of surf lifesaving. And, and so we were all about lifesaving. We loved lifesaving. We just wanted to take it to its ultimate peak where one of the sports that stemmed out of lifesaving could become as successful and popular as it could be and it would attract more people to the movement, you know, more types of people, athletic young people and stuff like that. And so we loved the sport and the movement and everything else, but we'd all grown up in different regions. Dwayne, South Australia, Grant, Sunshine Coast, Guy Leach and Craig Riddington, uh, Manly, and mm-hmm. me on the Gold Coast. And we'd all grown up in different regions and won our titles from different areas. But when we came together, so, you know, how, how, do we, how are we going to come together when we've grown up in different areas? We're trying to beat each other and win. But we... The time in that moment made us realize we have to come together to pull this off. We can't be enemies. We have to be best mates because we have to put on a show in the water. But when we come out, we all have to turn up to the shopping center appearance for mm-hmm. three hours in the sun or out, you know, at, you know, stand out at the, the car yard down at Portsy Back Beach or whatever. You know, we have to do these things to make our sport succeed. So we had skin in the game in our own sport. Mm. So it was really cool for me because, and all of us, because we couldn't just say, hey, here's my sport. I've trained hard. I'm going to win it. Give me the prize money. But you, to are say, owners, actually, renters. you are owners, not renters, we would say. Yes, <laughs> you know, we were like owners, you, not renters. We knew yeah, what yeah, it took. Yeah. We knew what it was like to have not have a sport with all the money in it. We knew like, what it was like to have a sport with some money in it but have a lot of controls wrapped around it and a lot of limitation and fear. And then mm. we knew what it was like to have a sport where people were excited about what we're doing. 
So when I look back at career highlights, I go, I loved winning the races. I loved winning Uncle Toby's series. I loved how many people turn up to our beaches to watch it. Yeah. But I love that we pulled that off, you know, with people like Mick Porra and mm. Graham Hannon and Ingrid Ropers and Karen Guest from Uncle Toby's and Steve Dillon from Uncle Toby's. These people are names that people around close to it would recognize, but they were heroes in our movement because they put us on the front page of everything. Mm. Um, and I, that was the biggest achievement when I think about it now was to be a part of something like that and to be honored and humbled to say, oh, my God, I got to be the star of that. You know, mm. I was one of the stars, but for quite a period I was the guy, you mm. know, and it's like, wow, that you don't become the guy without, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people making it possible and actually millions of people because we, we'd have up to a 2 million people watching it on TV mm. um, in a country of, at that time, I think we had 20 million or something like that, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, it was like being the star of a show that involved millions of people and... I think about it, I don't think it was so much an achievement as it was an experience and something that I'm really grateful and humble for. So the winning was awesome. I won many titles. I won many, won many things. So to take that to the successes and the failures or the, the goods and the bads or the lights and the darks, um, because I was a young guy who'd grown up with those insecurities and everything I mentioned before, I would take any sugar you would give me. Like I just wanted to be... I wanted to feel more loved. It was all about love. I would never never took drugs. I was never a drug person. Loved. We all got into drinking after races and stuff like that. And because you'd go to the local nightclub who wanted to host you, oh, you're in town. Everybody come to the local nightclub. And then they'd walk you'd walk in the door and they'd give you a drink card. Here, you know, and because I was the guy, the winner, here, Trev, here, put the drinks are on me for the night, you know? And so you become the guy in the corner that everyone would come over to and and you'd top their drink up or whatever else. And so it's like it's not what you'd call power, but you'd call it influence. You know, you had yeah. some sort of a power. But um, I wasn't ready to have that level of um, responsibility, you know. So You guys are still young. You were still yeah, young. I mean, too young to, to you know. You in your to, early 20s and you were these rock stars thrust yeah. upon the world. Yeah, that's true. You were still young. <laughs> we, we were really, and, I, you know, this is, I just mentioned Guy Leach, Grant Kenny, Dwayne Tyson, and Craig Reddington. Yeah. Um, to the so uh, Dwayne and Grant were five years older than me, and Rido yeah. and Leachy were four years older than me. Yeah. So yeah. the five of us, the you know, we called ourselves the Big Five, right? That's how that's how much ego came into it. We yeah, we did that in triathlon too. You got yeah, to do that; it's all part of the game. Yeah, yeah, and we um and we were tra- traveling around having everywhere having these experiences, but we were all treated like and treated each other like we're the same age. I was four years and five years younger than all those guys. So I was, people thought, oh, you you know, when I was, you know, 40, people thought I was 50, you know, mm. because there was something about that whole, whole thing. I had to mature quite fast. But what were the dark side of that was the love that I was chasing. Um, you know, I was married at 19 to Jackie, um, who was like the childhood sweetheart. And oh, that's young, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, you yeah, know, yeah. And we, we had a child, Christelle, uh, our beautiful mm. daughter, at nineteen. Jackie yeah. was eighteen, um, and or married at eighteen, child at nineteen, and and so you know, I had these two worlds that that humble, simple part of me that was connected to country, wanted the love and wanted the connection, and that was the part that had the connection with Jack, and then the other kid that felt insecure and everything had this insatiable desire to be more loved. And so, you know, as we got more famous, it became infidelities and it became parties and it became things like that where 
that dark side started to come in and I became, I couldn't stop feeding that insecurity, you know. Um, so, mm. <laughs> you know, you become um, like a, I, I suppose, a product of, of those insecurities as much as the passion and purpose that you've got inside of you. Also, mm. the fears and the worries become the dark things. So, so the lows became, you know, marriage breakup, financial breakup. Um, I had a few injuries and things, but they were things you learn from and recover from. But when you mm. put all the highs and lows together, I realized I was up against a bit of a, um, an internal state of emergency. My body started to collapse. Um, I, had, I was on anti- antibiotics all the time, anti-inflammatories all the time, a tendonitis, I had all sorts of different things going on. Um, and I got sent to a chiropractor kinesiologist who was really out of the box, um, but he was you know, world sort of renowned in, in his abilities and he was on the cutting edge at the time. Um, and he would say now he knew nothing compared to what he knows now. But um, he he sort of pointed right to me and said, you've got two major issues. One, you've got some intolerances. I think there might be a bit of alcohol in your system. I think you've got a dairy, maybe a dairy intolerance or something. So we need to check you out for that. And he said, also, you've got some emotional stuff going on. I think you might have some suppressed anger issues. <laughs> and I remember looking at him thinking, who the, you know, is this guy, who, who telling me, da, da, da. and he said to me, if you don't deal with these things, you won't win another world title because your body's telling me it, it's going to collapse on you unless you sort these two these things out. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm three times world champion. Who's he telling me this sort of stuff? And, and um, you know, like the, in, the ego that I didn't know I had, all of a sudden revealed itself inside of me. I remember thinking when he said suppressed anger issues, I remember thinking mental note to self, I do appear to be angry about what he just said, <laughs> you know, but I'm thinking in my personality. I want to throttle him. Hang on. I am angry. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've come to learn this this um, beautiful, um, I suppose, viewpoint around our psychology and it's been really helpful for me that I teach it as well and it is called where we have a front cover and a back cover. And our front cover is what we project to the world and our back cover is our deep, deepest fears and insecurities and things that we hide back. Our back cover is like the racket that we're running, you know, that mm -hmm. we're hiding from the world mm -hmm. and um, what we really believe about ourselves and about the world. And the front cover is what we present and project to the world. And, and those two things are both an illusion, they're not real, and they work to enhance each other. So the spirit and the, and the true essence is lost, struggling while those two things fight for dominance, you know. And mm. so what I presented to the world was the nice guy. I was the nice guy from next door, you know. He's humble. He wins all the races and he stops and signs all the autographs. He helps the cameraman carry the camera out from the beach. And, and to a degree that was a reflection of who I really was um, yeah. deep down. But I was presenting that to the world so that they wouldn't see the back cover. You know, because yeah. in the back cover, yeah. I was desperately trying to get control. I was all the things I mentioned before, fears and insecurities and everything else. And so when Keith mentioned this to me, I'm like, what? No, I'm the, the nice guy. I'm not angry. Other people get angry. I don't get angry. You know, I'm, I'm thinking these things. And he said, anyway, so what I'll do is I'll get you to come back tomorrow if you want to work with me. It's up to you. And um, I want you to bring some food samples in and we'll do some testing. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and I'll get you to write a letter, you know, there was a whole other thing which I won't go into, but, and he didn't touch me. He's a chiropractor and he didn't touch me. And I walked out the door and I'm thinking, yeah, I'll be coming back tomorrow, all right, mate. I'll be coming back to prove you wrong that I won't win another world title. So this is how insane the ego is. No, I was going to yeah. come back to him 
to prove I didn't need him. Yeah. You know, um, so this is the insanity of the ego, right? So I drive down the road and I, you know, you know the Gold Coast. Well, I drive from Palm Beach down. I'm going over Burley Hill and some fascinating things have happened for me on top of that hill. Um, but I'm driving over Burley Hill and I'm like, oh, who's this guy I think he is? And, you know, he's an idiot. And I'm like swearing inside my head and anger, I'm not angry, you know, like I'm really going off inside of myself. With with a little bit observer in me going, mental note, when you stop this rant, you do appear to be angry. Anyway, <laughs> I, as I'm doing it, I must be sort of shaking my shoulder, you know, because I'm like, ah, oh, I'm like shaking my body like I'm angry, driving the car. Yeah. And I'm, I all of a sudden feel no pain in my shoulder and then I move my hip and no pain in my hip and I feel my arch and my foot that I've been taping and everything, no pain in my arch. And I'm like, no incessant suffering inside my body. And I'm driving down the hill the other side and I'm going, hang on, he didn't touch me, but he didn't touch me. And then this voice really clearly says to me inside my head, a clearer voice, like almost like a voice of wisdom, goes, and my wife teaches this now to young girls in in her Sacred Sister Project. She calls the voice of judgment and the voice of wisdom. And the voice of wisdom says, um, he told you the truth. And I was like, what? What truth? What truth did he even, what? What? Why do I feel like this? And I drove down the hill and I felt, Greg, I felt alive, mate. I felt so free. I felt so connected. It's like the sun was coming through the window and touching me like a real, like it was a being, not like a, a sun ray. It was yeah. like everything felt like connected and beautiful. I'm like, what, what is this? And I hadn't felt that since I was a kid. It was like close the loop on from the day I decided I needed to be somebody or something else. Back to the day this guy told me the truth, you're carrying anger inside of you. Um, it closed the loop and the truth, you know, no, there's an old Christ saying, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And it was like that little truth opened something for me, opened a pocket of energy and I was like a doorway and I was like, what's this? And I was like, so by the time I went back the next day, I went back not from wanting to prove him wrong. I went back from going, what the hell just happened? What did you do to me? Who are you? Who am I? What's this all about? And I began an exploration through all those things. So I was I had all the light, incredible experiences. I had the dark experiences mm. that were manifestations of what was inside happening on the outside. But then they all led me back to the light to go, what are you carrying, mate, that you don't need to carry with you? Who do you mm. think you've become that you don't need to be? And And so I walked a path and it was really, really interesting because my mates, oh, he's changed he doesn't want to come to the pub with it after the race, you know. And it was like I had to go through the stage of being alone and being true to my real self, not true to the self I'd built that was best friends with everybody, um, uh. which was just letting go of what I, how I'd attached those relationships. And then after a while, one by one, all of those beautiful people had come to me and said, hey, mate, and chatted to me about real things and deep things and even asked for help and, mate, I know you've been through this. What do you think? And, yeah. And those true friendships came through where those people, I still hold them as some of my closest friends. We we can look each other in the eye and have a cry and hold each other, have a hug and just go, I miss you, man, you know. Yeah. Um, so it all made sense. And that How lucky. How fortunate were you to have that, to stumble upon, uh, do you say his name with Keith? Um, Keith Maitland. Yeah, yeah Keith Maitland. Yeah. He, was, I mean, he, he was the he first was- Australian. He went to the US to pass his um, – Applied kinesiology diplomat um, level mm. of status, and he was the first Australian to ever pass the test, mm. and he was the first p- 
person to ever see. When he did, it was like 20-something Americans in the room at the same time, and he was the only one that passed on that day, mm. and he was the first person to ever pass it on the first sitting. Mm. Um, and it's applied kinesiology, George Goodhart's work, and it's, you know, no matter what you think of any modality, no modality is the, is the be-all and end-all of, of no. healing or anything else, but they have all got a piece. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that kinesiology has is a fast-track way of finding out what some of your um, your body gives the feedback to what what you're, you know, allergic to or what's where you're storing your toxins. Are they emotional things? Are they physical things? Are they chemical things? So it's a it's a fascinating modality that's helped me right along my path. What, what was your anger when, when you said you could see mm. holding on to anger? Was this anything specific, or was it built up of time of trying to be somebody you're not, or was it you know? You know and, what, and, yeah, you know what, dude. That's you're the first person in one of these interviews, even though I've mentioned the anger every time, to ever ask me what it was. Isn't that beautiful? Um, I'm curious. I'm I'm, I'm getting into a session right now, mate. (laughs) Um, You know, I think deep down I felt insecure and I felt Mm. like, um, I'll say it like it felt like the world was projecting to me that I wasn't good enough. Of course, Mm. you know, the same thoughts that are coming at you seemingly from another person because people do judge and people do criticize and people do say things like, oh, whatever, mate. You know, when you're growing up in a young group of guys, there's one-upsmanship and there's, you know, mm-hmm. um, social com- competition and and there's, oh, okay, loser. You know, there's all that sort of stuff that was, that was um, quite rife when I grew up. I remember going to, I was in year three and I walked past the year four area after playing at lunchtime and there was a bubbler in the wa- year four area, a water bubbler, and I pulled my mouth down to have a drink, and this kid came up and grabbed my face and shoved it into the bubbler. And I yeah. sat up and I went, well, and I like just crawled, like scared for my life. Like, and this bigger kid in year four, well, you're year three, what are you doing in the year four area? And then F off, you know. So how old, How long goes that? I'm year three. It's eight, I'm eight. So that's 47 years ago, you know. So it's about 1976 or something like that. And which is about when I joined Nippers, right? Mm. And um, and so, you know, life um, was presenting to me these moments where I felt small and um, seemingly other people were big. My father was big and I had to live up to him. So I both loved and adored him but also craved to have the power that he had because he could tell me when I was allowed to do something or not. I had to follow his rules in the house. So subliminally, subconsciously, I want to have that much power one day and I want to do what I want to do. I want to play for longer. You know, I don't want to make my bed today. I want to eat more chocolate or I want to eat my dessert before I eat my vegetables. You know, like simple little things like I want to have power someday, not have someone else have the power. So there's that subtle thing. But as I grew up and went out into the social world, I I began to feel like as if, all right, I'm out here now, I'm my own person. I've ridden my bike down here. I'm at the club. I'm my own person. I'm not being controlled by mum or dad or anybody else. And, uh, oh, hang on. The guy who's a year older than me who won the title, who's he's got bigger abs and he's he's got, he's got abs and he's got a bigger chest and he's sexier than I am and he's funnier and he's confident he surfs better and he won the title. He gets all the girls and now he's got the power. And I'm so I think the anger was – um, a result of the illusion that I was powerless. So mm. 
the experience over and over again in this realm and this, this this dimension, I'm going to say, on the the 3D, the earthly dimension, the way the psychological game works, which is the 4D, the fourth dimension, where we introduce time and space and everything. I I didn't feel like I was enough. I didn't feel like I was good enough. And so inside of me, there was a spirit bubbling to to find my power and to work out who I really was. Um, but because it was unresolved and undiscovered and not tapped into, it was bubbling as an anger. It was bubbling as a F you, F a lot of you. I'm sick of this. I don't want to feel this anymore. I don't want to ever be the guy that gets the floor swept with, you know, sweep the floor with me. You know, I don't want to be the guy that gets laughed at or ridiculed again. I want to be the guy that's got all the goodies and winning and, and got the easy ride in this life. So it became anger about um, feeling powerless. It's, it's really it's it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I'm nodding my head again, but yeah, it, it's yeah. funny. I, I, I've talked about on this show a bit at times where I – how – insecurities can be so empowering, right? To, mm. to drive you towards whatever you think success is right now. Yep. Success is a whole nother conversation. We can break that down, but it's like this, uh, this insecurity that empowered you, or even if you want to call it, it that, that it kind of festered as anger, it drove you to mm. do what you did in sport. But at the end of the day, being successful in sport doesn't actually mean you got a successful life either, right? Like it, it, mm. it was, but you thought the answers would be, yeah. I've won everything. It, I should. Everything should be better by now. Everything should be perfect right now, right? Like <laughs> why, do I, why do I still feel the same? But worse? I'm a good-looking <laughs> six foot. What are you? Six foot four Aussie, yeah, blonde yeah. Aussie. You know, hugging Madonna. Yeah. And still, but but it's still almost like you, you thought that was the answer, but it, it was like, hang on, no, that that's not me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating when you break all that down. What, Mate, what you, a, and I, you and I what a, for hours on this stuff. Yeah, what, and what a beautiful, I, I suppose, point to pause and observe and feel how beautiful it is to talk to each other because, um, you know, the great thing about that experience is it led to more light, you know, mm-hmm. so um, because it's like, okay, so what's real power? If I've got this power now and it's power over, so I was under people, other people's power or the power that's, that's permeated and, and promoted in the world as a good thing, even with fame and Insta-fame now and all that sort of stuff, you know, influence mm-hmm. and everything. It's power over a situation. You know, it's not power with a situation. It's mm-hmm. over a situation. And, and we've, we're connected. For, if you're religious, you'd say you connect, you're disconnected from God. If you're spiritual, which I'm more, you know, just spiritual, you'd say you're disconnected from source or the universe or that one life force that, that kind of binds us all, that one great loving life force that, that is there sitting behind all things. And, you know, and many different modalities, you might call it different things. But I was disconnected from a greater force while I tried to corral towards myself all these resources of control and respect and money and mm. position and you know um, that that are that are really only um, celebrated in this dimension of thought on this third and fourth dimension where everything's dualistic. So in other words, we live in this world where it's all good or bad, it's right or wrong, it's win or lose, it's success or failure, it's fat or skinny, it's mm-hmm. dumb or smart, it's rich or poor, it's slow or fast, it's good enough or not good enough, it's acceptable or it's unacceptable. It's a world of duality that sits in our mind, and because our mind um, is the pre the, the, is the uh, predominant producer of the chemicals inside of our body, we then live in a physical state that 
um, reiterates what the mind is saying about the situation. So if you're in fight or flight, you're in the amygdala of the brain, you're in the um, uh, you're producing cortisol and adrenaline to try and get out of this situation of danger, um, and you're you're in the sympathetic nervous system. And that can only last for a little while. It's meant to get away, help you get away from saber-toothed tigers, not help you deal with a thousand emails in a row over five hundred weeks. You know, <laughs> um, it's meant, not meant to be a slow burn death in your adrenals that you require a two p.m. coffee, an eight a.m. coffee, an eleven a.m. coffee, a two p.m. coffee, and a chocolate bar, mm. and to keep your adrenals going and everything else. It's a it's a system that's designed to keep you alive, not to to help you to thrive. You know, so you can get back to thriving, and so. When you slow down, we have these conversations and you begin to realize we've all been dragged or drawn into this winning or losing duality, um, rather than, which is a past and future. It's a, I, I want to get away from what I was feeling and go towards this future moment when I will be feeling this. And this moment right now is not good enough. So we're trading mm. off the moment, you know, which is where everything's really happening. It's happening in the moment in the for the present that. moment. And it's not a, it's not a point of time. It's actually a place, you know. Yeah. The moment no, I, is actually, I love it. Yeah. It's like being present right now. It's funny. I had Dr. Tommy Wood on my show yes, and, and yes. Tommy's been on the show about five times. You'd, you'd yes. love Tommy. When yeah. you start your podcast, mate, which will help promote here, but uh, yes. you'll need him on your show. And, Thank you. And his big thing is he doesn't like the word optimize and yes. being optimal because it basically creates this, if you're not optimal, you're not perfect to some degree. You live in this like, and you're living in this constant state of chase to try Never and, enough. and it's like to come back, be present, and then go, look, I'd like to be a bit better at things. That's, that's a fine way to say to your body, hey, you could be a little bit better at getting up earlier or going to bed earlier or whatever it is or being more present. There's all whole ways that you can speak to yourself yes. that are less, that don't have the negative consequences if you don't achieve. It's simply, hey, you could probably be a little bit better at doing that. Boom, boom, boom. Yes. Um, but we just did that podcast last week and it's oh, resonating no. with everything you're saying about, I think, we're all getting dragged along with screens everywhere, right? We, we, yes. we get the little screens, the slightly bigger screen and the really big screen. Yes. And we go between them all. Our brains are never off. You yes. know, if, if you look at ancestors, they, they hunted and gathered, they yep. did their jobs and then they were off and they, they worked and then they were off. Whereas we're constantly, our brains are constantly on. We're yep. never decompressing to the point of going, hey, just turn everything off. And it's all okay. It's actually okay to not do anything for a moment. Just, <laughs> I yes. don't know. It's, a, it's, it's an um, interesting space. Uh, th- like three things really quickly. Firstly, when we hunted and gathered, we were following our intuition. We were following our instinct. We were following things we'd learned from the previous season that our ancestors had passed down around when the bison turn up or whatever it is. We were putting it to the test to see if it's relevant again this year or not, or if they shifted somewhere else because of the winds and the currents and the, you know, the fish not coming yet because of this and this and this. So we were actually constantly learning and into in in a relationship with nature itself, and we we're intuitive. We we're growing this part of us that was actually one with our surrounds and had to work with it, had to understand it to to survive and, and thrive. Now. Oh, we just order it on Amazon, turns up to our door, we do it on here. We, You know, all that screen time is not just a distraction away from our connection. We're also not developing the skills that we used to develop. We're not developing our ability to, to know and to go within and get to try, go, ah, don't, don't go down that valley right now and look, peer over the rock and all of a sudden there's a saber-toothed tiger down there. You know, we, we just we go headlong into all these problems and issues because we're switching all this stuff off 
because we just believe what we read or see or whatever else and holds all the answers. That's one thing. So we're not spending enough time developing who we really are and tapping back into that great innate wisdom. Second thing that I just wanted to share is that going back to what we're talking about before, I just want to point out something for people that are listening. Great teacher that I ended up working with, um, he and he helped me with the spiritual understanding of all this sort of stuff. And I, he's still the most profound person I worked with. He passed away, doesn't like, never like to be named or anything. So I'll keep his name out of it. But um, he, um, he said to me one day, and he said to a group of us, he, he said, "Explain the way emotions work, and each emotion has a tone, a vibratory tone." So Nikola Tesla said. If you want to understand the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Nikola Tesla perfectly described the mobile phone FaceTime call in the 1930s, how it would happen. It would sit in the pocket, you know, da 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 This is how far ahead he was. When Einstein was asked, what's it like being the smartest man in the world? He reportedly said, I don't know, you'd have to ask Nikola Tesla, right? Mm. So Tesla said, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Everything is energy just vibrating at a different frequency. So the mm-hmm. chair I'm sitting on, the cells of that, the you know, the atoms in that is vibrating at a frequency to make the fabric in this chair. The hair on my head is vibrating at a certain frequency. So there's a blueprint, a frequency blueprint or vibratory blueprint inside of every atom that gives it its potential to become whatever it wants to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so this is what quantum science now tells us. But if we bring that back to simple things like emotions, which are actually quite simple once you understand them, as every emotion, you could put them on a scale of heavier or lighter vibrations. So every emotional state, eventually they don't become emotions, they become energetic states or spiritual states because they're not emotional anymore. They're just like states of awareness. Um, but down the bottom you have spiritual death and grief and apathy and give up and heaviness and depression and loneliness and all these mm-hmm. emotions mm-hmm. way down the bottom. But when you come further up, there's a break-even point. And the emotion just above the break, the first emotion of freedom, the first emotion of exp- an outward expression that will get you to go towards the best version of yourself, the first emotion is anger. So the first emotion that expresses outwardly that you haven't yet died and you haven't given up and you haven't gone into an internal plan or plot to pay everybody back is anger. Mm-hmm. So anger is actually a healthy thing when expressed in the right place at the right time with the right people. It's not a healthy thing expressed at somebody that can't handle it, that you put power over them, everything else. Anger can be an unhealthy thing. But expressed in the right way in the right time with wisdom, with the right person that can hold it for you, anger is you saying, I'm not ready to die. I don't like this situation. Something's not right about it. The first emotion or emotional state below the line is suppressed anger. Mm. So anger is not our issue. It's the suppression of our anger because anger holds the seeds for knowing we want something better. There's Mm. something better. There's something not right. It's the suppression of anger and turning it into a plot or a plan or a cunning, you know, I'll get you in 10 years' time or I'll withdraw and I'll find some (laughs) other power and I'll come back and get you. And that's the part that was getting me is that I had the plan to become the one so then I got the girl. Mm. And that's the part I had to see. When I did that, I went, ah, the anger was me just trying to express that I don't want to be this hopeless, useless, you know, individual (laughs) anymore. Hang on. So what does that actually mean? I wasn't actually in the first place. That's the back cover. It's an illusion. I was Mm. trying to be like someone else. That's what made me feel that way. Who am I? Who am I really? So I can have the same plan to get up early in the morning 
and it can be so I can go to the gym and get my abs back <laughs> and mm. feel stronger or, you know, so I can win that race or so I can get power and go and, you know, get in the Fortune 500 company list, you know. It, it's it's not um, why I'm getting up in the morning. It's my intent. It's not why, what I'm getting up to do in the morning. It's my intention for doing it. If I mm-hmm. If my intention is not from suppressed anger or control or fear or insecurity, if my intention is, hey, I'm feeling a bit – my life force is waning a little bit and I feel a little bit troubled and I feel I'm starting to get a bit angry and reactive. I'm going to get up early in the morning so I can meet the morning sun and I'm going to walk and I'm going to feel nature again and I'm going to actually just open myself up to what's possible and I'm going to have a bit of self-healing and I'm going to ask myself, sit on the beach and ask myself or in the park or at, by a mountain stream, ask myself, am I okay? What, what do I need to do next? What do I really need? I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop looking elsewhere and I'm going to ask myself and I might even ask out to nature itself and ask out to the mm. universe, what do I need to do about this? And and so it's okay to think that the situation I'm in is not okay and I need to change it, I need to fix it. But it's not it's when it gets difficult is when we go when we resist the situation and we make it wrong and bad and we try and get away from it rather mm. than learn from it, understand it and go, What's it teaching me? How can I improve it from a place of grace? You know, how can I embrace it? Accept it, embrace it, and create something different. Not reject it, resist it, and fight to make it, fight to never feel it again, you know, which mm. is where we start, you know, wanting have, to have fame or money or position or drugs, alcohol, sex, followers, medicines, anything to stop me feeling what I was feeling. Um, mm. So that's mm. what I, I just wanted to share is the anger is not the issue. The anger is the sign you're still alive. Um, using anger as your tool, not a, not a powerful and long-term way to do it, but using anger as your indicator that um, you need to go within, find some growth, let some things go, and find your power in more authentic, more find your power to be with the world, power with, not power over, you know, like is what, I've, what I, I've learned. I think um, you've touched on so much in that. I. I often phrase it as, you know, there's three questions we need to be asking ourselves quite often and, and, and you change daily and hourly minute, <laughs> but do you know who you are? Yep. Understanding that first question of, do you know who you are? Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, that requires you to be, you know, for me, that's being 3.30 in the morning, 4am in the morning, standing outside on the earth barefoot and, mm. and talking out loud. I like to talk to myself out loud. Nice. I, <laughs> I like it. I, I find it far more... I don't know. I've, it's, it's so much more impactful. Yes. There's no one around at 4 a.m. in the morning, so I'm fine. Yes, but do yes. you know who you are? It's a really important question to ask. And, yeah. and am I angry? Is there something under the layer there? What am, what am I feeling? And then do what's, you know what's what sitting you want? inside of me? Like, I know yeah. who I am. Like, yeah. No, I, I feel like this when I'm myself. What's that feeling? Where's that coming from? But people, people aren't stopping and reflecting and no. self reflecting enough and asking themselves the question do I know who I am? I guess we're, a, not, we're not getting encouraged to, mate. That's the thing. We're not that, getting encouraged to. People we, are we not all get the next one, which is, do you, know what you, do you know what you want is the second yes, question. Yes, And yeah. everybody's, oh, I want $100 million and I want this, this, and this. And it's like, well, no, mm. no, 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 no. Listen to do you know who you are first, mm. then ask do you know, you know, what, what do you want? want? Yeah. And then the third one is, you know, um, are you in control of your own life? And that's the part mm. where – you're talking about anger or we can even throw in ego and some of these mm. other ones. They're not bad if you control them and manage them and you become the CEO of your life. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, if you can understand that anger 
you know, that old song, Anger is an Energy, what is it, by Public Image Limited, remember that? Uh, I remember um, Shirley Strawn from um, from uh, Skyhooks, Ego is not a dirty uh, word. You go, you've got Ego, ego and you've got an anger song that are both, both about sort of you can be using them as tools when you understand who you are and what you want and they're going to be there. We all have these things underneath us and we get infuriated but it's kind of like the self-reflection um, and just – pausing mm. just pausing for a second and asking yourself these questions and doing it daily i found to be quite quite helpful for me but when you went through all this i don't want to take too much of your time i just no, i just want to say when you say that even as you say it this is one of the things i love is that when i do one-on-one work with people um and even group work with people um when, what you just said when you said uh pausing as soon as you said it, it invites us to pause yeah. You know, and this is where um, what we don't do is we don't because what the the best reason to pause is because when we pause, something opens up, uh, like another dimension, another energy rises. We go, whoa, what's that feeling? And what's that sense? And what's that connectedness? And what's that love? And what's that openness? And that's the thing we've been craving the whole time. So mm. when we pause, we get the thing that we're running around chasing. You mm. know, so what I teach people is it's just two simple things: is you have to feel it to heal it. You know, um, if there's something you've avoided, you've got to talk your way through it until you can actually see it and then feel it. Ah, oh, there it is. There's the original feeling that I tried to avoid. You know, you asked me the question, what was the anger? And it was like, I'm able to answer it because I felt it. And I'm able to sit with it now because I felt it. And so you, well, number one is feel it to heal it. And number two is when you feel it, you'll then see what you took on, what you carried around because you didn't feel it. Oh my God. Oh, that's what my mum and dad had, you know, or, oh, that perpetuated right through my relationship. That's why my first relationship failed. Or I carried that right through that business thing. I never trusted. So once you feel it to heal it, you can then see, see it to free it. And which is, you can see what actually happened. And there's a saying that my teacher had shared with me. And it is when you have a solution to a problem without an awareness change, the solution eventually becomes the problem. So oh, I'm not feeling good. I'm not fit. I don't feel good about my relationship or anything else. I'm going to run like I did when I was a kid. So we go running. I love running. I feel I don't have to deal with anybody's shit while I'm running. I'm out here. I'm running. I'm running. And like six weeks later, what are you doing? I just run every day. Da, da, da. What's happened? I've got shin splints. I can't even stand up. You know, um, there's always when we have a, when we're trying to avoid getting, becoming aware or self-aware, um, we have a new solution to the problem and that solution eventually becomes the problem and you can apply that to anything. In Australia, we, in, in Lord Howe Island, one of the most beautiful places in the world, they introduced owls to each, eat the cane toads, um, which had got off, no, sorry, to eat the rats mm. because the rats had got off the um, ships on Lord Howe Island, this beautiful island 600 k's off the east coast of Australia. And um, they introduced these owls that love eating rats so the owls would go hoot, and then the wood hens that only exist anywhere in the world on Lord Howe Island would go, oh, they're super friendly, they've never been hunted, there's no indigenous population ever on this island, and the wood hens would come out and go hoot, and they'd make a noise back to the owls, like, hey, how you going out there? And the owls would go, that looks tasty. And the owls would go, bugger chasing these rats that are hard to get. They'd just sit in the tree and go hoot, and then the, the wood hen would come out and go hoot, and then the owl would go bang and eat the wood hen. So they introduced the owls to eradicate the rats, and the owls ended up nearly eradicating the wood hens, which are, you know, unique um, to that thing. So when you have a solution to a problem without a change of awareness, they had to understand 
the whole ecology of the island. What what a, you know they had to go through this whole awareness shift to understand how to eradicate the rats um, without killing the other things on the no, island. Yeah. I feel like we we could do, change this topic and go fully into politics these days. Absolutely. And the way we, we quickly Absolutely. go one way and say, like, right <laughs> yes. So, so the point being is that that when you have the awareness change, you suddenly realise that, yeah. and when you pause, you go, okay. In the pause, I feel everything that I've been craving to feel. So, do I really need all those things that I'm chasing to feel that? Um, and then you start yeah. to work out which ones you do need and which ones you would be handy. But what actually happens, you come into a state where you can have or not have things. You can be or not be with someone. You can do or not do something because you don't feel like those things complete you or those things, um, you're nothing without them. Because in your pauses, you're, you're one with life. You're connected. But you can still play the game but from a place of freedom. Mm-hmm. And you can chase stuff with fun. And excitement, enthusiasm, watch the collaboration and the connection, but you can have an intention to have everybody win at the same time, you know, rather than have market share where I win and they lose. It's like, no, 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 we're just going to create a new product that inspires others to create new products. And so there's a whole different way of thinking comes just from inspecting the wisdom of the pause. I love that, mate. I, I, you know, it's funny, I, um, I've been talking a lot this last year about you know, practicing gratitude and <clears throat> doing it every single day, every single morning and gaining perspective mm. from practicing gratitude has been really fantastic for me. You know, I, I needed to do it. I'm not saying everybody had to, but I think I was, mm. I needed to do it. And it's, you know, I've been doing it for probably, I don't know, 10 years or so, but every single morning go out and just be grateful. The, the fresh yeah. air, the running water. I've raced enough in Beijing, China to know that fresh air is not a given running water, you know, like all yeah. of these things that yeah. we take for granted. And then you go, you know, I go quite nuclear and to the family and everything else, but yeah. it's been so amazing for me to do that. Not mm-hmm. just in the sense of like, okay, gains perspective and I feel more present in a daily basis, but also that you I now look at life as time trading, right? As time mm-hmm. is the number one commodity we have left. It's not money. And everything I do is like, it's mm-hmm. very well thought out now. Like, okay, am I going to start this new business? Am I going to build another company? Or what, what amount of time am I going to trade for that? And why mm-hmm. am I wanting to do that? And asking yourself real questions before you act on anything. I, and it, I, for me, it's been really great. It really has. It's, and you what, know, you, what, am I, what, what is my... Um, what am I spending that current time on? If I have to trade yes. that time, what yeah. am I currently spending that time? Because I'm going to have to take it from something else. Exactly. You know, oh, you know what? Well, I can stop doing this gratitude practice. That'll give me an extra 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it's oh, like, oh, down the road. What are you going to But it's like you have so much time. I, I just read another book. It was quite good with, uh, it was called uh, Die, with, Die With Zero. So Die yeah. With Zero. And it, there wasn't anything in it that was like, oh my gosh, that's eye-opening. But it was definitely a, mm-hmm. a little reminder, look, You've got this life now. Do what you can now. You know, you you and I are both in our 50s and we still got reasonable health. And it's like, okay, well, if you want to be doing things, do them now. Because whatever we do, whatever happens in the longevity space, we're all ending up at the same destination and health will deteriorate. No matter what anybody says out there, it will happen. And you start to go, hey, okay, well, what do we want to do now? It's like I'm booking trips back to Australia every year for six to eight weeks when the kids are on school holidays here. While they're still young and I can throw them under my arm and they're not going to be signed up for other things or can't do anything. It's like, okay, we do that now because when they're 12, 13, 14, it gets a bit Mm. harder, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Having that awareness, and I think a lot of this just comes back to self-reflection and grabbing some awareness of who you are 
and what mm-hmm. do you really want? I think is uh, really cool. But mate, I want to finish yeah. with yeah. Four, final four questions. Um, mm-hmm. I've kept you for a long time, and I really appreciate it because it is you did start at six a.m. for me. You're an early no, riser, like so. Good. I appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. All right, the first one: if you could tell your eighteen-year-old self something, what would it be? Yes, and I've probably answered this question or similar a few times, right? Um, yeah, you kind of talked about it kind of in the show, but it'd be interesting to hear you. I'd say um, relax. Mm. Um, you, you are enough. Um, you're going to discover things about yourself that um, will blow your mind. Uh, the world is not as it seems. It's more <laughs> about energy than it is about um, winning and conquering and succeeding and there's nothing you can get from that that you won't just let go of later anyway (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'd say enjoy the journey and still do it fully but just know you're going to discover who you really are you know i think i'd say something along those lines and um and and love and respect the people around you that is really profound. I wonder if your 18-year-old self would just tell you to go jump on your bike. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to show up like like I'd have to manifest vibrating <laughs> into the bed in the middle of the day so that I, I actually believe something magic was happening. So my 18-year-old self would go, holy crap, I can't deny this, can I? It's I'm real, you it's real. Because you do look like me. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes I feel like we, you know, you, you do gain wisdom with time and experience, right? And And – and we can try and help an 18 year old, but sometimes I feel like people have to do their own journeys and, you know, yeah. and, I think and, so. and that's why I think I'd say, you're actually going to discover who you are, not this is who you are. I like you know? that. Yeah, she you're going to find that, things that relax. You're going to mm. find things about yourself that you never dreamed, like not, yeah. not what you're going to find. Cause I, I think, um, it's just to be more about just going, just relax. It's okay, mate. Stay, yeah. Stop dying yeah, yeah. on the inside, you know, but, um, <laughs> But having said that, that that death on the inside forced me down many tracks that helped me learn so much about who I really am anyway. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't like, change a thing at the end yeah, of the day. You wouldn't change you a thing. Who you are. Yeah, I know, yeah. it's funny. It's an interesting question because you do you just go, Well, mm. shaped me to go through yeah. the journey I did. So why would I want to oh, yeah. yeah. It's like going back in a time machine. Anyway, next one. Name three people, living or dead, that you'd love to have dinner with. Ideally not family, but if you want to do family you can. Oh, okay. Um well look, um, I'd love to have Jesus Christ, firstly, because I want to have a chat to him about a few things (laughs) and about what was really going on at the time and um, what really happened because I've become aware of many of the distortions that were put into the teachings about his life and everything else, but I also feel very connected to him and I'm not religious, never have been, but I also feel very connected to him. I've had some very profound experiences around his teachings and that Christ consciousness of forgiveness and understanding and eternal spirit and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm, so I feel mm. very connected to this. I'd love to just have a chat, you know, like, a, hey, mate, you know, because um, I Great know he'd one. be much more like that than the pedestal that everybody puts him on. Um, <laughs> he'd be, hey, hey, yeah. Trev. <laughs> he'd be like, hey, how are you going? And he'd be looking straight through me going, you're on your way. It's good. It's good. You know? um, love, it, love it. I'd love to have Eckhart Tolle there as well, um, mm. wrote The Power of Now. And and um, for those that haven't heard of Eckhart Tolle, when mm. Oprah Winfrey was asked if you had to leave the planet in a hurry on a spaceship and you could only choose one book to take with you for the planet, what would it be? And she said it would be The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Um, mm. And beautiful, elfish little German man that grew up in, you know, lived his adult life in London, now lives in Canada and 
probably the most profoundly peaceful, still egoless man on the planet and um, beautiful. I've been lucky to spend a few days with him, five days and um, in a retreat and stuff like that. And I'd love to have some more time with him. Mm. Um, the third one would be, which I'm not allowed to have, is my wife um, because she's my best friend and I want her to be in on the conversations. But let's I just say I, I can't have her and she's I've got her over in the corner somehow. Um, you know, she can be waiting the table. There's, there's, <laughs> I, I have trouble choosing across a few different people, but, you know, Elvis Presley comes to mind. Um, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy comes to mind. Mm. Um, Nelson Mandela would be a no-brainer, of course. Um, I'm really good mates with um, Kelly Slater and yeah. I'd lo- love to have Kel there so we could share in that conversation with these other two, um, yeah. you know, because yeah. we've shared so much in life and, and unlike similar to yourself having such a similar journey to me, it's it's the same with Kelly, um, mm. it, same same trajectory and same sort of journey. Um and so it'd be beautiful to spend some time with with those people. Um, there's so many people I think I'm I'm missing. I, so I haven't really pinned down the third person. But if I had to push, came to show a good list, mate. I want to be a waiter at this one. I yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? It's a very difficult one to answer. But I, I wouldn't mind I, having Elon Musk in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, because they know that um, Elon could uh, watching him grow and learn and open and change and. Uh, I, I know he's standing for free speech and everything, which is a powerful thing to do in America right now because, yeah. you know, we're yeah. getting a bit lost. But um, yeah. uh, he's, he's speaking some brutal honesties and everything else. It would be great to have him in a conversation and get him. This is turning into a party, mate. Yeah, this is not, I've got lots of people this is not a dinner party. This is a full-blown, I want to be invited to this thing. This is epic. Well, in the US, you know, having um, Tucker Carlson and Megan Kelly would be an interesting one too, you know, yeah, yeah. interesting people would have along. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'd avoid the others. So that's maybe, awesome, maybe mate. Jim Carrey. Anyway, sorry about that. Too many people. No, no, no. I'll put you on the spot with these, and uh, mm. you've given me some really good ones. I, mm. I love it, mate. I, I think that's a fascinating group. I agree with the Elon Musk and some of these others, and they're just these are brilliant, brilliant people that you've talked about. Um, all right, next one. Where do you see yourself in five years? Really good question. Um, I f- well, I feel it's like- a hard one when you're content and present with what you have. I've realized this with visualizing. It's very yeah. difficult to visualize five years when you're very you're in yeah. the now. So, I, anyway, I love, the, the year we're in is two o two four, and a new you know twenty twenty four in numerology that adds up to an eight year, and the number yeah. eight when you turn it on its side is the infinity symbol. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and the numerology, they say this is an eight-year, particularly in a balanced eight years. So the last one would have been um, 2015. But two, one, and five are not balanced numbers, where two, mm-hmm. two, four are balanced numbers. So what they basically say is that and two and two is four, you know, and the next number in the, in the increment is eight, two, you know, four mm-hmm. and four is eight. And so there's yeah. something in numerology about this year being a really, really powerful year on the planet. And it's a year where a lot of things that people have been working on for a long time will come together, that cycles will complete, awarenesses will come into full full fruiting, you know, um, people that are working through their egoic issues or worked hard on themselves for a long time will suddenly feel a flow um, of uh, uh, an unshackling and a freedom. They might have been in many dark nights of the soul for a long time, you know, and mm. So 2024 is very much setting, and I can feel it already. It's setting itself up of a year of, okay, who are you really? You've taken a long time to understand that. 
now bring it into play. And so if you look at the number eight, yes, um, it's great to be in the moment, but the number eight is a continual perpetual flow and cycle. Mm. And so when I think about my own being in the moment, when I'm in the moment, I don't, it doesn't stop me and I don't go into this peaceful, still place where I just want to meditate on a mountaintop forever and disappear <laughs> into the oneness. When mm-hmm. I'm in the moment, I feel like I'm tapped into the whole universe. I'm tapped into particularly the planet's journey. And just speaking for me personally, I feel a flow coming through me. Like I talked about once upon a time, anger would be the first emotion of freedom. Uh, it becomes more because above anger is, is boredom and above boredom is interest and above interest is enthusiasm. Um, and then you go up into um, bliss and excitement and also, you know, all sorts of other things in tones. And so now when I meditate, energy comes through to me in a form of enthusiasm, and they say that enthusiasm is Latin for the God within, mm. and spirit uh, inspired is Latin for the spirit within. And so I get this enthusias- enth- enthusiastic feeling of what I can do next. So I both feel still, peaceful, and like I don't need anything, and I also feel um, the impulse, the beautiful drive or to go towards something. So in answering the question, I'm, I'm more tapping into what am I going towards at the moment? You know, like what, mm. what is it that I'm going towards that I feel drawn towards? It's a bigger picture. And it feels like to me um, I'll be communicating a lot on the planet. I'll be holding uh, space for more different interesting people around the world that um, just need someone to listen to them and understand for a little while so they can get their covert anger and suppressed anger into real anger and out into boredom, interest and enthusiasm, you know, um, mm. because the, the power is within every single person and I'm really interested in helping other people tap into what they're all about and that's what I'm all about. So I, I also want to be touring the country, touring the world. I want to be in nature regularly, very balanced in my use of electronics um, and um, uh, a lot of things that I'm already doing to a degree, but I, and also all the new friends and wonderful people like we've reignited our connection today yeah. and we'll connect on other things. And, you know, um, I just really want to help the tribe come together and discover each other. And so that's where I see myself in five years is, is just quietly playing a role to make sure people are really becoming aware of how powerful they really are. I have a saying in my work, it's my motto and it is bring it into now and never underestimate the power of who you are. So that's what I want to be helping with more in five years. Oh, mate, what a great answer. Um, listen, and, and by one, the way, helping raise grandkids and all that because I've got number four grandchild on the way. And, you get know, out. And Man, I feel like I started children, and, you, know. <laughs> you got grandkids. Yeah, Your grandkids are the same age as my kids. Anyway, better late than never. But, yes, mate, yes. I think this has been a really um, profound and – just amazing episode. I oh, thoroughly cool. enjoyed you coming on. Thanks, um, man. I feel like this is almost to your point, as you just said, I feel like this might be part one of a, maybe a, mm. a series we put out over time. Yes. I, I think we could, I we think could we could. We could some um, cool things. Could we, we could take some subjects and have some fun with them. Absolutely, mate. And, and I enjoy talking to you. Um, I want to thank you for delivering a, a sporting career that did ignite a lot of my, passion and enthusiasm so as much as it might have had its ups and downs for you it was a for a lot of australians we grew up you know i can imagine chris mccormack and craig alexander and all of us sort of nodding our heads um you know you 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 had an enormous impact um 
on the youth of Australia and guys, you're right now. I mean, I'm basically your age. So you really, it, it's so wonderful to have you on the show to get up early and just talk. Um, we, we have a lot in common. I think we yeah. both are trying to figure out this whole world yeah. and life. Doing and, our uh, best. Doing our best. And yeah. We're not perfect and we're yeah, trying. No, definitely and, not perfect. Definitely. Red, Sometimes red. a real idiot. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But mate, I really appreciate you coming on. So thanks for joining me. No, thank you. And I, I just wanted to say two things. One is um, uh, I, and I do now love and appreciate what I got to do in sport and I got to yeah. I understand now more and more um, that what I was doing was demonstrating for many people doing my best at the time with what I knew, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's why I also try and do my best now to to give all the other elements to it to make it more transparent for what the journey was really like so people can see oh, that was what was happening for me too, um, yeah. so to open the doors like to how, how far we can travel and how free we can feel and alive we can feel. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing I want to say. And just second thing, I really appreciate the call. You know, you keep thanking me for getting up early. Thanks for... <laughs> for the extended conversation and thanks for what you're doing and um, thanks for just you being you, mate. I just I, I love, respect and appreciate who you are and what you're about and I'm, I'm really grateful for the chat today and that we've reconnected. I'm, I'm, you've made my day. Yeah, so cool, mate. It, it goes both ways. So yeah. really fantastic. Um, I'm looking forward to getting this episode out in the next yes. couple of weeks. but. Mate, thanks again. And for everybody listening, you can find all the show notes and everything else at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right, mate, Trevor, stay on the line, buddy. Cheers. Thanks.